Hello, everyone. This is Sal from Bitcoin Taxes. Welcome to our podcast. Each episode, we speak to an expert with knowledge related to cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. Our guest today is Matt Metris. Matt is an enrolled agent at MDM Financial Services, a boutique tax firm located in Rochester, New York, that specializes in cryptocurrency taxation and accounting. Matt, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And can you give us a little bit of background about yourself, Matt? Yeah, totally. So like you said, I started uh, my firm in 2004 uh, and I started working with crypto clients in 2014. I actually took my first uh, payment for a crypto return in Dogecoin uh, and I'm still hodling that Doge too. Uh, <laughs> nice. I think it's worth about $83 right now. <laughs> so definitely going to retire off of that one. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, and I also uh, uh, am one of the administrators of a Facebook group for cryptocurrency tax professionals and also a moderator of uh, the subreddit Crypto Taxation. Okay, yeah. And so you have a pretty big kind of like digital presence, right? I know we, we really appreciate your input on our own subreddit, the Bitcoin Tax subreddit. You're always providing great answers. So you definitely are utilizing that kind of digital presence, right? Yeah, I spend probably too much time uh, yeah. <laughs> on Reddit and Twitter, <laughs> you know, and I should be doing work. Uh, but it's always interesting to see, to especially get on Reddit and you really can get in touch with what uh, the cross-section of uh, crypto users thinks about uh, things tax-related or non-tax-related when it comes to crypto. Yes. Well, I, first of all, it's nice because in today's age, you know, spending time on Twitter and Reddit can be considered work. So that's nice right there. And, and secondly, I'm sure you're used to hearing a lot of people, as I'm used to hearing this, a lot of people saying crypto shouldn't be taxed on Reddit. There's always one or two people that have to post that cryptocurrency taxation is theft. I'm sure you're familiar with oh. that. Absolutely. And is it when you get out of the uh, tax specific crypto subreddits and some of the more general ones, I think that percentage is, uh, increases dramatically. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, it's nice to have somebody who, who knows that uh, that challenge of, of interacting with that audience because it's their right to believe that. But I mean, they're putting themselves at risk and other people at risk by having that kind of opinion of <laughs> hey, I'm not going to pay taxes, you know. Yeah, okay. I, I always say, you know, the, the statute of limitations, if you don't file, never starts. So if you think you can uh, outrun that clock, more power to you. But eventually, they're going to come looking for the tax. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. All right. So we recently had some new guidance in October. Um, it's been a few months since that guidance has been released. Cryptocurrency hasn't imploded since then. So can you kind of just talk a little bit about that guidance? Give us a recap of it and uh, we'll kind of talk about your opinions and, and how you viewed that. Guidance. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like you said, in early October, uh, the IRS released two new pieces of guidance on cryptocurrency. Uh, and this was the first guidance we've gotten since uh, March of 2014. Uh, and many of us in the professional uh, area have been asking for this guidance and just sort of getting uh, no response from the IRS. So in early October, they released two pieces of uh, guidance. One was the revenue ruling 19-24, uh, which dealt primarily with hard forks and how uh, the taxation works around that. And then they also updated the uh, FAQ. Um, both of these are considered to be sub-regulatory guidance. There are lesser forms of guidance. Uh, when the IRS has different tiers, basically, of, of the rules that they follow, and these are on the lower end. 
Uh, and then since then, there's sort of some informal things that have trickled out of various uh, IRS employees, and none of them meet the level of uh, formal guidance, and some of them contradict each other. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I remember there was a, a few things released on Twitter. I would see these release of information, and then the next day, the same person would come back and say, you know what? somebody else contradicted this or it was not official. And so there was a lot of confusing stuff. And this was just within the past uh, month or two, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, uh, you know, uh, October, November, there was a big bump of this sort of informal stuff that trickled out at conferences and, you know, because various IRS employees will come and speak at conferences. And, and when they're speaking, they're not officially representing the entirety of the IRS. Uh, so you can't interpret their statements as something you can rely on, but it kind of gives you some insight into uh, where the IRS is leaning on a lot of things. Um, and they sort of hold these things close to the vest as far as the official guidance. I guess that gives them the most flexibility, uh, but it's really uh, to the disservice of the taxpayer. Yeah, absolutely. And so real quick, I just want to point out that it's interesting that you said that there's kind of like levels of guidance and, you know, obviously people talking at conferences, not an official guidance, but the guidance that we're talking about specifically here in October, this guidance that was released, it's interesting to hear that that's kind of on the lower level of guidance because it's the first kind of official piece of guidance that we received uh, since 2014. Yeah, it's definitely disappointing. I think uh, a lot of us were hoping for something a little more concrete. Uh, and even in the in the guidance that came out, especially the revenue ruling, it, it probably created more questions than it answered, uh, too much to everyone's frustration. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, what kind of questions did the new uh, ruling and the new guidance create? Can you talk about that? Yeah, so one of the big focuses of uh, this guidance is is when you have the ascension to wealth. Uh, which is when a fork would be taxable. Now, this deals only with hard forks. You know, soft forks, you don't ever recognize income. Uh, and it sort of broke the hard fork question down into a hard fork where there, which isn't followed by an airdrop and a hard fork that is followed by an airdrop. Uh, and one of the first things off the bat is it doesn't seem like the IRS is using the term airdrop in the way that the crypto community uses the term airdrop. Right. And so that's one thing we kind of just have to give them a pass on that and talk about anytime there's a fork where you have control over a, a new coin, uh, that's what they're referring to as mm -hmm. an airdrop. So the, the questions come down to when exactly do you have control of that coin? Because that's how you, you have to determine the fair market value at that point. But is that at the first block that's mined, at the second block, at some point that day, you know, when it's trading on an exchange? And there's such large price fluctuations in that period of time that it, it makes it really hard to nail down uh, the value of these four coins. Um, additionally, there's, there's questions around, you know, if I didn't know the fork happened, is it still income to me? Uh, or if I didn't want the fork, is it still income to me? I mean, there's been probably what, a hundred and something forks on the Bitcoin blockchain alone since Bitcoin began am I liable to go back and find a value for every single one of these forks and amend my tax return? Uh, it sounds pretty uh, insane when you look at it that way. Right. And you would think the obvious answer to that would be no, but you know, we don't know at this point. I mean, especially based on the most recent guidance, I mean, there's really not clarity on that issue. I mean, common sense would dictate no, you don't have to go through it and locate all those forks. I mean, but that's just common sense, not official guidance, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Who knows? And, and those may not be necessarily aligned. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we look at as taxpayers is there's a taxpayer bill of rights. 
Um, and some of these things come really close to not being in compliance with the taxpayer bill, right? So there's a right to be informed, uh, which you can question whether or not that is happening right now. Uh, there's a right to pay no more than the correct amount of tax. There's a right to a fair and just tax system. And so, you know, all of those are open for interpretation, uh, but you, you have to question if, if all of these tests are being met. Uh, one great example is there's, a, there's almost two tiers of uh, tax rules here, whether or not you have your own private keys and you have control of your wallets or if your coins are on an exchange. Um, so the process is different if I have my private keys, uh, if I can access my new coin, or say I have my, uh, my coins on Coinbase where they are going to hold on to it until a certain point in the future and then uh, give me access to it. And I can end up paying way more or less tax on the same amount of a forked coin than uh, you might just because of where I'm holding my coins. And that doesn't seem to, you know, be fair to everyone involved. Right. And, uh, you know, I want you to elaborate a little bit more on that. But first, I have a question, um, which, which may be a dumb question, but do you think that we need something like a crypto tax bill of rights? Is that possible? It would be great. Uh, I think it's unlikely. Okay. So cryptocurrency is not, I mean, it's becoming a, a, a more priority issue for the IRS, but it's not something that they have dedicated a lot of resources to uh, in the last few years. Um, and especially, I mean, with the whole Tax Cuts and Jobs Act changes, there was a lot of work to be done at the IRS and, and cryptocurrency sort of fell by the wayside. But there is an office within the IRS called the Taxpayer Advocate, and they would be the best course uh, for crypto users to sort of reach out to them and say, hey, we need this to be fair. Um, and it would, be, it, it would be unlikely that they would add a specific bill of rights just for cryptocurrency, but it would be great to see uh, more information about how exactly things are supposed to work. Okay. Well, I asked that because I don't want to jump around too much. I'm sure we'll talk about this in a little bit, but there is a bill about a de minimis exemption that people have been talking about this past uh, week or two. So is it more likely for a bill about a de minimis exemption to pass than it is a cryptocurrency taxation bill of rights, or are they both kind of in the same playing field? Um, I would say they're both in the same playing field. So the, okay. the bill you're talking about is uh, House Bill 5635. Uh, it was, it's sponsored by the Congressional Blockchain Caucus, uh, which are some members of the House who uh, actually understand this stuff. And, and one of the issues is a lot of the uh, elected officials just really don't understand cryptocurrency or what the needs of the crypto community are. Um, unfortunately, I don't expect either to get a lot of traction in Congress just due to the sort of political gridlock that exists generally. Um, but it would be great if we could get something like this into place. Uh, this bill uh, specifically would exempt uh, $200 of gain uh, if you were using your cryptocurrency to buy uh, goods and services. So there's always that example of uh, I'm spending my crypto on a cup of coffee and the burden of calculating the capital gain on my $5 cup of coffee uh, is going to exceed the cost of calculating that gain. Yeah, it would be a great bill to actually pass, but you know, we have to see whether it's, it's realistic or not, whether it does pass, but it would be amazing if we did have something like that. Yeah. It would be a game changer completely because it really, 
um, the way the systems and structures are set up right now, it, it discourages people from using uh, cryptocurrency for anything, really trading or buying goods and services, because it just introduces uh, unknowns. And, you know, you don't want the IRS to come back later and say, oh, you owe tax on this thing. And you didn't, it was never your intention to try and like dodge your tax requirements. It just is so such a complex system uh, that it, it might be easier to just hold on to your crypto and not do anything with it. Yeah, for sure. And that's what a lot of people are doing too. Yeah. So on the topic of that, and we kind of, uh, I kind of brushed past this, I apologize, but talking about keeping your coins on exchanges, can you talk a little bit more about that? Can you elaborate a bit more about how you could be at a disadvantage if you have your coins um, on an exchange um, versus control of your private keys? Yeah. And um, so there's a couple different things going on. Various, uh, some of that, like I was mentioning the information that's been trickling out of the IRS, some IRS attorneys, and it's usually attorneys who are making these statements. Um, they have acknowledged that it might be a dif different situation uh, if you have your coins in a wallet versus if you have your coins on an exchange. You know, the one thing we all know is if you have your coins on an exchange, you don't really own those coins. You know, you have uh, a representation of what those coins are, but without the private keys, uh, we've all seen major exchanges be hacked or disappear or, um, you know, have there was one not too long ago where the owner died and had the only keys to the wallet and everything was just gone. Uh, so in that circumstance, you don't know. So well, let's take Bitcoin Cash, for example, when that forked in August of 2017, uh, the first day the price hovered uh, on various exchanges around $210 to $426. Um, and so if you had one Bitcoin at the time of the fork, you would get one Bitcoin cash and you would have to, under the revenue ruling 19-24, uh, you would have to recognize uh, between 210 and $426 in income. Now, if you had that coin on Coinbase, they didn't give you access uh, to those Bitcoin cash until December 20th, uh, at which point their trading price was four thousand three hundred and fifty-five dollars. Wow! Yeah. So, so that's it's quite a huge difference. Yeah. So uh, we each have one Bitcoin cash, and and you paid uh, two hundred and ten dollars, uh, or recognized two hundred and ten dollars in income, and I had to recognize forty-three hundred. Uh, it's quite quite the difference. Yeah, and especially when when you're assigning something value, and you know two people have a, a Bitcoin fork, you know, resulting in some Bitcoin cash. If the IRS is looking at two returns and one of them says, hey, I had one Bitcoin cash, it was worth $400. And the other guy said, I had one Bitcoin cash, it was worth $4,000. It's going to cause issues with capital gains later on, not only income, it's going to cause issues with capital gains. I feel like that's going to cause some confusion with the IRS. Yeah, no. And I think you're onto something, Sal, because it's nowhere when you report this stuff to the IRS, do you list what kind of wallet or exchange your coins are being held on. Exactly. So there's no, nothing to cross-reference that, especially if it's three, four years down the line, or, or, or let's say I hold that Bitcoin cash for 10 years, and then I go to uh, sell it, and I recognize the gain on it, and I get audited. I have to prove that basis somehow, and, and these exchanges that exist now might be gone 10 years from now. So there's no third party to kind of corroborate what I'm saying, and I have to somehow prove to the IRS that I did it right uh, when they, they won't tell me how to do it. Yeah, our next update, uh, which should be out by the time the podcast is released, has the new feature that tracks transaction IDs from exchanges and wallets and includes them into our capital gain reports. So that should be useful for a lot of people. 
Yeah, that would be a great feature to have, uh, especially that would also tie into uh, the requirements around specific identification. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, that was a big part of it. Yep. So it should be rolling out very soon. Fair enough. Yes. Um, so you actually were in a unique position. You were able to speak with somebody that was responsible for the, the October IRS guidance, correct? Yes, that's correct. So, um, you know, a lot of times when we talk about the IRS, it seems sort of like a faceless uh, monolith. <laughs> and, you know, even when you call, you, you can't even get to a person sometimes. But one of the quirks about revenue ruling specifically is that the author's name and phone number are at the bottom of the document. Uh, so after that revenue ruling came out and I read it and it generated quite a number of questions uh, that I couldn't figure out the answer to by reading it. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to give the author a call. Uh, and so I got her voicemail. Uh, the author was uh, Suzanne Sino, who was a general attorney in the IRS's Office of Chief Counsel. Uh, and I left her voice message, and I really honestly expected to never hear anything from it again. Right. Uh, but about two hours later, she called me back, uh, and we were able to speak for about 15 minutes and talk about some of my concerns. So did you ask her questions, and she gave you answers, or how did, how, what was the conversation like? Yeah, basically, I had a whole list of questions uh, that I was looking for some clarification on. Okay. Because as we've talked about, the revenue ruling was pretty uh, vague in some of its descriptions. And then also another part sort of inaccurate in, in its descriptions of how hard forks work uh, and how those new coins are generated. Um, so basically, a lot of the things we talked about had to deal with timing um, when you actually have dominion and control or, or sorry, I should say when you have the ascension of wealth or, or constructive receipt. Now, constructive receipt is the idea of, um, you know, uh, say I'm a landlord and my tenant mails me a check uh, and it's sitting in my mailbox, but I don't go and get it. So just because I don't go and get that money out of the mailbox doesn't mean I don't have to recognize it for tax purposes. It's mm -hmm. there. I have control over it. I could go get that money if I so cho chose to. Uh, I'm just choosing not to. That doesn't let me uh, not report it on my taxes. Now, if they still have the check and they haven't mailed it yet, that's a different thing, right? Because I don't have control over it at that point. Uh, so there's sort of some analogies there when it comes to forks, but it gets a little more nuanced uh, just because there's almost always some sort of affirmative action that needs to be taken to claim uh, a forked coin, whether that's uh, installing a new piece of software or you know, moving your, your coins to some specific wallet that is compliant with the fork, mm -hmm. uh, and, and all those things you know, potentially present security risk too. So there could be a, a, you know, like a Windows wallet that has malware in it, and you know, somebody creates a fork, and you go and download that wallet, they're really just stealing your private keys. You know? mm -hmm. um, so it's very difficult to know when exactly, uh, under the law, did I get dominion and control over this coin. And, and kind of on that topic of uh, it being a potential risk, then that kind of goes with the idea of if the IRS is saying that you have to claim those forks, then it's like, okay, you're telling me that I have to potentially put my holdings at risk because you want me to claim this fork that's, you know, worth a fifty just so I can claim it on my taxes. It seems kind of counterintuitive and almost it, it, problematic in a way. Exactly. And one of the things I specifically asked her was, what about malicious actors? Um, you know, there's, there's a couple different things that are going on here. You could not be just even trying to steal private keys. You could go fork the chain and anybody, uh, you know, could do that for a malicious reason and, you know, have one exchange that uh, is full of fraudulent transactions that has a super high price, right? You know, just to, for a scam. Uh, and in theory, everyone would have to 
report that as income, even though it never really existed in the first place. Um, so I asked her specifically about that. And the, basically the, the response that I was told is that it, everything depends on individual facts and circumstances. Hmm. So the IRS is really <laughs> unwilling to, to lock themselves into any sort of position right now. Uh, and there was a different interview with a different uh, IRS official where they basically said, we really just don't know what people are doing well enough to make concrete rules uh, around this thing. You would think that they would release maybe a statement, like an official statement that said, you know, we're gathering data, you know, give us a year and we'll kind of, uh, we'll get it together. Obviously that's not going to happen that they're going to do that. But I mean, on, on this year's return, for example, there's a question about whether you did cryptocurrency, uh, if you did any sort of cryptocurrency activity, right? Yeah. And that's, uh, so that's going to be on schedule one. Uh, and that is potentially a problematic question at all. It's a very, very wide ranging question. For sure. I mean, uh, it's basically, a, a, I mean, a yes, if you are doing any cryptocurrency stuff, you're basically going to have to answer yes. It's almost as though, and, and you're the expert here, I'll let you speak on it in a, in a minute. But to my understanding, it seems like saying yes would be the safe bet. Because if you say no, you're, you're opening yourself up to um, potential fraud if they ever come back to it. Yeah, you never want to uh, lie on your tax return because at the when you sign your return, there's a box there called the jury. And, you, and what you're saying is under penalty of perjury, uh, you are attesting that everything on this document is correct. Mm. Um, and what this box is doing is if you say no and later on they find you, now in addition to all the penalties, they also have you on criminal perjury charges. Uh, so it's a really good incentive to accurately answer this question. Uh, but there's a couple potential issues with it. The question itself is, at any time during 2019, did you receive, sell, send, exchange, or otherwise acquire any financial interest in any virtual currency? So that's a pretty broad question. Yeah. Um, but it has one big kind of glaring loophole in it already. So what if I bought all of my crypto in 2018 and I just sat on it all of 2019. Do I check yes or do I check no? Hmm. Um, and so uh, there was an interview at another accounting uh, panel, uh, and this was Pamela Liu, who is a branch two senior counsel at the IRS Office of Associate Chief Counsel. Uh, and she was asked directly this um, and said, basically, if you don't do anything, if you have it and you don't do anything, you would check no. Wow. But she also said, a taxpayer who checks yes, but doesn't report any other cryptocurrency activity on the return will probably be asked by the IRS to provide more information explaining why he or she didn't report any cryptocurrency related income. So there's a huge disconnect here in if I uh, purchased cryptocurrency, there's nothing to report because that's just my, my initial basis transaction. So if I bought and hold, I have to check yes but then I'm not reporting anything else on my return and I'm basically asking for a letter from the IRS. Um, so it's very uh, frustrating from a tax practitioner standpoint when clients are going to be getting these letters for following the rules. Um, yeah. And in a roundabout way, it almost um, kind of discourages adoption. I mean, potentially discourages adoption in the sense that, you know, I have, I have some friends that just don't really know a ton about crypto, but they might have like a Coinbase account and they just want it to kind of, learn about it or play around with it. And maybe they got like a, I think Coinbase gives you like a five free dollars worth of some coin when you sign up. And it's like, they technically have 
uh, cryptocurrency, but they're definitely not going to put that they have that on their taxes because it's $5 of a free crypto that they're not going to do anything with. They're just playing around with Coinbase. So that's kind of like a, if they get a letter from the IRS saying, hey, you, you check no here, but we have some information showing that you have a Coinbase account, for example, if Coinbase ever has to release that kind of information, it would be, uh, you know, potentially, um, you know, dissuade them from trading or doing anything else with crypto. Yeah, absolutely. And that could possibly be the intent here. You know, we don't yeah, really know. Yeah. Um, hopefully for $5, it's not going to be worth the time and effort of the IRS. Uh, but you never know when they just, a lot of letters that come out are just automated. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time a person actually looks at them, it's already when you have a, as a taxpayer have gotten a letter and you're sending the response in is the first time that, a, that an actual person looks at them. What, what do you think the likelihood of Coinbase sending even more information to the IRS is, uh, you know, obviously they had to send in that information a few years back, which caused some of the letters that were sent out recently, you know, saying, hey, we, you're part of the Coinbase summons. What's the likelihood that Coinbase might just give the IRS a lot more information? Like, hey, here's the names of all the people that trade cryptocurrency. Is that a likelihood or is that more of a, a paranoid fear of some people? So personally, I think it's almost a guarantee that it's going to happen. Wow. Okay. Um, And here's my reasoning for it, Sal. We want crypto to be mainstream, right? Right. Yep. 100%. And it's going to, to be mainstream, it has to comply to all the same regulations that securities would or any other sort of investment. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a stockbroker who trades, trades stocks and wouldn't report that information to the IRS. It's just unheard of, mm-hmm. um, especially because, you know, the SEC gets involved and, and they'll get fined out the wazoo for not doing it. Um, so it's only a matter of time, in my opinion, uh, before all of the at least U.S. based exchanges uh, are providing information uh, to the IRS. Mm-hmm. Um, an interesting addendum to that is um, I've, I've worked with a couple of clients and, and you know, the, uh, the 6173 and 6174 letters that went out uh, over the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a large overlap with the people who, who received those letters who were also part of the Coinbase summons. Um, but there are people who I spoke to who were not part of the Coinbase summons, have never used Coinbase and somehow ended up on this list of information that the IRS has. Which is very interesting to hear because from people I've spoken with and just kind of like the general consensus or the general belief was that everybody that received the letter was part of the Coinbase summons and and there was no, nobody else received it. But that's, you know, I've heard that too. And that's interesting that it's not just Coinbase summons uh, that got the letter. Yeah. So there very well could be exchanges that are already providing information to the IRS and just haven't made that information public that they're doing it. Uh, Coinbase, we know because there was a lawsuit around it, right? right? But if Coinbase had just rolled over and given their information to the IRS, we might have never known that. Um, you know, I don't know in each of these exchanges and their terms of service if they're required to disclose what information they turn over, but most of their agreements will say something along the lines of that they'll cooperate with government agencies that are looking for information. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely something that I think in the, in the relative near future, uh, will be more formalized and, you know, it may be a system like the 1099Bs that we see for securities, but it, it might have to be a little different um, because of the fact that it's so easy to move coins between exchanges and wallets that the basis information on those 1099Bs would not be uh, accurate. But really, 
anything would be better than the 1099Ks that are being issued uh, currently by some of the exchanges because those don't reflect anything close to reality uh, and just create more problems than they solve for taxpayers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they just create fear for people, especially that don't understand them. Um, we've talked about it so many times. We have people all the time uh, writing in, you know, tickets and emails to us at Bitcoin Taxes asking, you know, hey, my 1099K says I made this much money. Uh, that's not true at all. I didn't make any profits or, you know, I don't have any money to show for my crypto trades. What, what do I do? And then we have to kind of like explain what a 1099K really is. That's just, that's, you know, disappointing that it's left in our hands to do that or the hands of professionals, I guess, to do that. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't make any sense. You know, we talked about using common sense in here, yeah. but how, how could that form where you're only going to show the gross proceeds for someone who's clearly, you know, conducting these transactions uh, in an investment type setting, it wouldn't make any sense. You wouldn't have a stock broker only report the sales and none of the purchase price just doesn't, uh, you know, they fixed that 10 years ago because they used to report those 1099 Bs with no basis information on them. Uh, So it's, (laughs) it just doesn't make sense to me. So that kind of brings me to my next question, which is we, the only way that we can kind of have these like, tax rulings and we can understand crypto taxation is by looking at general taxation rules and general legal cases. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a tax specialist even, but by looking at these past instances of tax situations, like acquiring a baseball card and how that's um, acquiring wealth so that we kind of look toward regular taxation. So you're talking about stocks. You just mentioned how 10 years ago it changed. Are there other situations where it took a really long time for the IRS to catch up? with logical policies? Yeah, probably everything everywhere. Okay. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> easy, easy. Nice. <laughs> the, uh, the tax code has been around for a long time, right? And it's been through some revisions. Uh, we had the last major revision at the end of 2017, and we're still, we still don't even have all of the guidance from that yet. So uh, there's definitely, the IRS is not known for swiftly deciding things. Uh, And it's also important to remember that it's Congress that sets the tax law. The IRS just interprets and enforces it. Mm, Right. So when we get this guidance, it's really the IRS not saying this is the law. The IRS is saying this is what we think the law says. Uh, And then as people disagree with what the IRS says the law says, it works (laughs) its way through the courts. And then we kind of get more firm you know, rulings on, on how things should be treated according to the courts. Uh, but even there, there's different levels of courts and there's always appeals processes. So really until something's been settled by the Supreme Court, it's still open for interpretation uh, to some level. Uh, and it could be a very, very long time before some of these issues regarding cryptocurrency are settled. On the topic of politics, not a lot of stuff nowadays is, is kind of a bipartisan. Would you say cryptocurrency is a bipartisan topic in the sense that there's people on, in both parties that support crypto and want crypto adoption to be a reality? Or is it, is it not really a bipartisan issue? Do you have any opinion on that? That is a great question. I think it's more of, uh, and I have a list here of members of Congress, but I don't know which ones are, are members of which party off mm. the top of my head. Uh, maybe we can check that out later. But I don't know that it's strictly a bipartisan sort of thing or if it's just people who are interested in crypto and then everyone else. If you're into politics at all, when you think of crypto, you kind of think of like independence, 
and, and that kind of ideology. Yeah, I totally get that. I, I think there is a large cross set of uh, cryptocurrency users and, and people who skew more libertarian. Yes. Um, just by the nature of what cryptocurrency represents uh, in sort yes. of a separation from traditional banking. Um, I did look up the, the people, the signatories. There was uh, two, four, six, eight, ten, eight uh, signers of this letter to the IRS from members of Congress. Uh, it went right to the commissioner on December 20th. Uh, and there's a good mix of Democrats and Republicans in there. That's good. Um, asking for clarification on uh, forks specifically. Uh, and the first question, does the IRS intend to clarify its airdrop and fork hypotheticals to better match the actual nature of these events within the cryptocurrency ecosystem? Uh, so it's clear that, that people in government are paying attention to this, but there's also sort of an irony because these members of Congress are the ones who could actually fix this by sort of going over the head of the IRS and have chosen not to at the same time. So yeah, it kind of feels like we're we're in the early days still of of anything happening because I think there were a couple of politicians that were accepting crypto donations. Possibly, I mean, I know Yang is like uh, talks about cryptocurrency. Obviously, he's running for president, but I feel like once it actually affects these politicians in a way, like if they're accepting crypto donations and then they themselves have to say, "Hey, how do we deal with this?" I think then it would obviously be more important to them and they might start actually taking action um, in Congress. But like I said, I'm not 100% certain like if, if it's even possible for candidates to accept crypto donations at this point. Do you have any idea about that? Or I don't know of anybody who's doing it, but I think it would be theoretically possible um, in the same way that you could make any other donations uh, based in cryptocurrency. Mm. Um, but I think, uh, you know, there's just, I think, a huge disconnect between the uh, overlap of, of people who are inter interested in cryptocurrency and uh, members of Congress. Um, you know, when you hear some of the other hearings like uh, on, you know, digital security and Facebook mm -hmm. and, and that sort of thing, uh, it becomes clear that a lot of members of Congress don't even really understand how major social media sites work. So mm -hmm. this is the next tier above that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although, uh, you know, I agree with you on that technologically. So, but at the same time, it's similar to stocks, right? And, and, and people that are in those positions of power are probably pretty familiar with stocks and the taxes they have to pay on stocks, right? So it's like, yeah. on you, one you, end it's technology, on the other end it's money still. So. Yeah, you would hope the money factor would be enough to motivate them, but <laughs> right, uh, right. I'm not gonna hold my breath on it. All right, All right so then back to Suzanne Sinnoh. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your experience there? Because I think it's a really unique perspective that you actually spoke with her. So anything else that you can share with our audience that you discussed with Suzanne? Yeah, totally. So another one of the questions I asked her was, what if uh, a taxpayer has no knowledge that a fork occurred? Um, is it still income? And uh, basically her response was, would it have been reasonable for the person to know? Uh, and that still leaves a lot to interpretation, right? So when I was, uh, I did a presentation for some tax professionals uh, a couple months ago, and I went and, and researched the number of Bitcoin forks between 2014 and 2019, mm -hmm. uh, and there were uh, 105, uh, only 45 of which uh, still have functioning blockchains. So that is a big <laughs> question as to, that was a surprise to me, right? And I'm a professional in tax and the cryptocurrency space, and I didn't know this. So 
was this a reasonable person's knowledge? You know, I, I don't know what that standard is going to be. Um, a lot of the guidance that, that came out of the IRS uh, reads like there have only been three or four forks ever. Um, and it sort of implies that those forks are Bitcoin Cash, uh, Satoshi's Vision, and maybe uh, like Ethereum Classic. Uh, oh, and Bitcoin Gold. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had specifically asked her about Bitcoin Gold, right? Because I was like, I didn't have a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, I had it in a hardware wallet. Uh, I didn't want the Bitcoin gold. It wasn't worth the risk of exposing my private keys, right? So I, I did end up claiming it. I, you know, I did it the right way. And it was like $3 worth of Bitcoin gold. Um, and it took me like an hour and a half, right? <laughs> so Because I had to figure out how to do it and which you know, wallets were going to be safe and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I sort of straight out asked. I was like, so if I don't want it, I still have to claim it on my income? And, and she said, yeah. And, and also confirmed that there's no de minimis for that. So my $3 is just as valid, uh, you know, if you had $3 million worth of Bitcoin gold. Uh, so it's, it's another one of those things that sort of doesn't um, comply with common sense. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it goes against even what we were just talking about earlier, how if you just had like a $5 um, welcome bonus for joining Coinbase, you really shouldn't have to worry about that and having to claim that if that's your only, you know, holding, but according to this, you know, phone call and according to this guidance, you do need to worry about that. Yeah. And another thing we talked about was one of the things that I personally disagree with and, and you know, that this may not be across the board is the holding period, right? When we look at short-term and long-term capital gains, the IRS considers the holding period of the forked coin to occur on the date of the fork. Mm -hmm. Now you can get really technical and say that you've held, you've held both of those coins mm. since the Genesis block, right? Or whenever you first acquired the coin, because with due to the technical structure of the blockchain, the new blocks can't exist without the blocks that came before them, which are part of the, you know, original coins blockchain. So wow. I think there's a, a technical argument to be made there, but for simplicity's sake, they say that the holding period starts at the, you know, the first block after the fork. Um, but my question was, how do you identify which one is the forked coin and which one is the original coin? You know, when we look at a fork like uh, Bitcoin Cash, ABC and Satoshi's Vision, uh, that first couple of weeks, it was really iffy uh, as to which of those two coins, if either, was going to survive the fork. Right. Um, and they both sort of, uh, you know, took dominance in hash rates uh, and trading price and, and it kind of went back and forth for a while. Um, you know, and I think there's a general consensus now that ABC won out. Um, but there's still exchanges that report ABC and Satoshi's vision as separate coins from the Bitcoin cash that you used to have. Uh, and, and it doesn't, you know, comply technically, it doesn't correlate to the examples that they gave are both of those four coins in that example or, and they reset the holding period or does one of them uh, revert to the original holding period? And basically the answer uh, that was provided on that was whatever the majority thinks the legacy coin is, which also creates other problems when you look at something like uh, Ethereum and Ethereum classic uh, where really Ethereum classic by all arguments is the original coin, just that, everybody decided to use Ethereum instead. Right. Uh, and, and with the BCH, ABC and SV, it was almost like a, from what I saw, there was like a philosophical argument there as to which one was superior. 
that's what I was seeing at least when people were debating which one was going to survive. It was like, well, you know, SV is, it was even, even called Satoshi's vision for a reason, right? Because it was, it adhered to like the original kind of idea of Bitcoin. Yeah. And the people who were very philosophically aligned to one of those two mentalities uh, went all in on the one coin, right? Exactly. And, and didn't care about the other one. Uh, and it, it creates some interesting implications for tax purposes you know, because they really are two separate projects that came out of something that sort of died in the middle, right? Right. Um, and, and my point of saying that was that it, it almost makes it impossible to find a consensus there, right? Like we might have a consensus now on which one won. Like you said, um, ABC kind of won out there. But during that time when there was no consensus and there was still debate, and there's still people that would debate you, I think probably the ABC won. There, it's hard to say what the general consensus is, right? Exactly. And, and especially, you know, what if that occurred uh, on December 29th of a tax year, right? And, and now you have to go into the new year reporting your taxes and it's still up in the air. Like, right. what, what do you do? We were lucky enough that there was enough time that uh, occurred between the fork and when the tax reporting was actually due that, um, you know, it became less of an issue. But there's mm -hmm. definitely a potential uh, so I'd specifically asked about that and, and really got the facts and circumstances answer again, which is sort of the catch-all. Um, and she didn't seem to be uh, super technically familiar with that particular fork to give me uh, what her impression of, of how that should be treated was. Hmm. Very interesting stuff. There's a lot to be said about it because I kind of get where she's coming from to give her some leniency in the sense that you have to know a lot about this stuff to kind of understand it. I mean, the only reason I probably really know much about BCH and BCH ABC, BCH SV is because I work for Bitcoin taxes and I deal with customers that have stakes in those coins every day. But if you're kind of just a general cryptocurrency user or advocate, you might not know anything about those forks or how they work or understand why it's happening. So for somebody like her, she, I, I get why she doesn't know that specific fork, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, you know, people like yourself and, and me, we work in this every day. And even still, I have clients call me up and they're like, oh, yeah, I got this token and it does this sort of yeah. special thing. And I'm like, I've never heard of that. Same man. here. I, yeah. I and, then, and then you're a master of it maybe a few days later, but that's only because you did all your research and somebody contacted you and said, oh, I have, there's this split that I need to know about OPQ and PRL. You know, yeah. like, okay, let me go look up OPQ and PRL and read everything about it. And then now you're kind of like a pro on that, on that split or on that swap, whatever it was. And, and you kind of, know about it, but that's only because you did your due diligence and somebody brought it to your attention. That's hard for you. Like you said, there's like a hundred plus forks and that's just forks. In the yeah. And that's just on Bitcoin too. Yeah. You know, we yeah. didn't even get into like ERC 20 tokens, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. but that's, that is honestly a good segue because uh, you know, the, the question of airdrops is still sort of unanswered. Right. Um, and when they, they used airdrops a whole bunch in this uh, guidance, uh, and the one thing we learned is that airdrops doesn't mean airdrop. Right. And they clarified that uh, on, uh, yes. let's see, uh, November 13th at an AICPA panel. Basically, they said the airdrops in the revenue ruling apply only to forks. So now we have all these other airdrops that are worth even less than the $5 that you got for opening right. a Coinbase account, uh, if they're worth anything at all. And how do you assign a fair market value to them? Um, and, you know, there's another question, and, and this happened to me just the other day. I, um, 
was actually selling some Ethereum the other day and I was looking at my uh, ERC-20 wallet and, and there was a token in there uh, that said, oh, it's worth about $60. And I was like, well, I don't know what this is. I might as well dump it for something that I actually want, right? Um, but I couldn't actually find an exchange where I could sell it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so is it income to me if I can't sell it to anyone? Uh, and, and that's another issue. So there was, Miss um, Sino did mention that you have to have, there has to be a market for it. But one of the things, I live in New York State, and New York is very restrictive uh, as to what exchanges uh, residents of New York are allowed to access from within New York State. Yes, as a fellow New Yorker, I can, I can uh, agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, so we ha- we're very limited in what we can use. Um, and, and, of course, there's ways around it that aren't compliant with the law, you know. But we don't, you know, we're talking about if we're doing everything by the book. Right. And I only have access to, like, Coinbase and Gemini, how can I sell these tokens that showed up in my wallet if I can't legally do it within my state, but federal law says that I have to recognize the income from it? Um, it's, it's very concerning that there's so many aspects of this that, um, you know, are not settled. Uh, it's, it's sort of, you know, if I mail you uh, tickets to a baseball game and you don't want them, is that income to you? Right. Uh, Maybe. <laughs> and it's the same sort of thing. I have these tokens. I didn't ask for them. Um, you know, there, there's an argument to be made if, if it's an airdrop where you have to go out, you know, and, and tweet about it and get on their telegram and whatever. Uh, and then they send it to you. That's one thing, right? Because you've done something, you're actually seeking this out. But if it just shows up in your wallet, um, you know, then, then how do you treat it? And, and I think it's okay that if they're not sure themselves of the answers to these questions, if the IRS is not sure themselves of the answer to these questions, I think that's, it's unfortunate, but it's fine. But the problem lies in the fact that they're going to start auditing people and these audits are or presumably auditing people. And these, you know, people are going to start getting in trouble and having to pay fees and stuff because nobody understood what to do here, which is unfair. Yeah. And, and they're sort of uh, taking a cop out position and, uh, a uh, conference that happened uh, just earlier this month uh, in January 13th, um, basically uh, an attorney from the IRS said that you could ask the IRS for a private letter ruling uh, if you needed some, some sort of settled guidance. Uh, and what a private letter ruling is, is basically you, you present the IRS with the facts and circumstances and they rule on it, but the results are only applicable to you. Uh, so it's not like, uh, you know, you can use that information from somebody else's private letter ruling yeah. to rely on. But the other catch is a private letter ruling costs $10,000. Jeez. Uh, so you really need to, um, you know, it needs to be worth that much at least in order to make the private letter ruling worthwhile. Uh, so it's not really a, a solution that's uh, accessible uh, to the average taxpayer who's trying to deal with their five dollars, uh, <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> doubt. And you know, one other thing that's that's sort of on this topic regarding valuation of these things. You know, we're told in the fact that we have to use fair market value, um, and we, we've talked about that in sort of the airdrop framing and and the and the fork framing. Like, if I don't have access to a, a market, like, how do I determine the fair market value? And uh, Ronald Goldstein, who is a branch four senior technic- technician reviewer. Uh, at the IRS Office of Associate Chief Counsel, uh, did an interview with uh, Tax Notes in November and and basically uh, said that there have been hard forks uh, in which new coins meet with limited market 
and in such situations, the assertion that these new cryptocurrencies have little to no value would be reasonable. So basically, they're coming out and saying that it's conceivable you could have a fork that has no value. Um, and I know you have talked about this on your show before that, you know, there's a couple forks where the, where trading has happened beforehand, you know, things like Bitcoin Cash and, and uh, Satoshi's Vision and all that. But there's a lot of other forks uh, where there is no market, there's no trading. So inherently, they have no value at the time of the fork. Uh, and it does seem that the IRS is at least uh, acknowledging that this is uh, a possibility uh, as far as reporting. Uh, but once again, this isn't official guidance, so you can't go out and rely on it, but it, it might give you a little insight into uh, how they're going to treat it if you take that position. Right. And another kind of controversial topic in the cryptocurrency taxation space is uh, 1031 like-kind exchanges. Did you discuss that at all? And, and what's your take on 1031 like-kind? Oh, man, that is like the uh, understatement of the world that it's <laughs> controversial. <laughs> yeah, right. For sure. Uh, the, the, the greatest thing, the the uh, tax Cuts and Jobs Act did for us was settle this uh, 1031 issue going forward at least. Yes. Um, and so now the IRS is, is at a point where they're not really incentivized to issue guidance on, on a section 1031 uh, like kind exchange um, because it is settled now. So what we do know is as of January 2018, uh, 1031s were restricted only to uh, real estate. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people uh, especially on Reddit, will go out and argue the position that this is saying explicitly that they were allowed before that. So for clarification, they were never explicitly allowed. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of other uses for Section 1031, um, and there are a lot of complex, super complex rules about it. I remember um, when I was studying for the EA exam, there's a whole section on what sort of livestock can fall under section 1031. So like you can't exchange a female cow for a male cow. Um, hmm. So it's all sorts of crazy stuff like that that's settled through court decisions. Uh, but this, this uh, how it relates to crypto never really became an issue that went to court. Um, so what we've done, and even within the practitioner community, there's disagreement on whether or not 1031s would be allowed. Um, the position that I take is that as a general rule, they probably would not be allowed because they have to be like in a number of properties. Um, and so when you look at, when you compare Bitcoin to Ethereum, for example, they're fundamentally so different in nature that it would be difficult to make an argument that they are um, like properties. But when you look at Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, maybe you have a stronger case there. Um, or if you look at Satoshi's vision and, and ABC, you have a stronger mm -hmm. case there or Ethereum and Ethereum classic, like those sorts of things or in between certain ERC 20 tokens, there's a, possibly a case to be made there. But what we have to do is sort of look at prior historical guidance on section 1031. And the area I like to look at, uh, is related to how the IRS has treated precious metals like gold and silver bullion and coins and, and stuff like that, because they're, they're sort of analogous. I mean, there's no perfect match for cryptocurrency, uh, but these things are sort of similar. Uh, and you can kind of see the thought process and the fact patterns uh, following a similar line. And there are certain cases where 1031s are allowable between precious metals and then certain cases where they are not. Uh, but more often than not, they are not allowed uh, unless the metal 
is the same type of metal and the same nature of metal. So you can't trade a gold bullion bar for a gold bullion coin because they're not the same. But you can trade a Spanish bullion gold coin for um, you know, an, an English gold bullion gold coin. Hmm. Uh, so it gets really, really complicated. Uh, and I don't want to go too much further into the weeds there, but we did, I didn't talk with this specifically uh, with the IRS, but um, there has been some informal guidance at that same conference that we were talking about in, in November uh, at AICPA. There was a statement made uh, that 1031 exchanges were never allowed, just sort of as a blanket ruling. As you can imagine, the uh, crypto communities on, on Twitter and Reddit were very, very uh, responsive to that statement. It prompted a lot of people to, um, you know, get very, very worried. Mm -hmm. uh, two days later, a different IRS official, Christopher Warble, who's a special counsel to the associate chief counsel. Everybody's something, some sort of counsel to some other counsel <laughs> at the IRS. Uh, but Mr. Warble said that there's no blanket policy on Section 1031 uh, and that every case would depend on individual facts and circumstances. So we're back to that facts and circumstance argument uh, or statement, which doesn't really provide us with a lot of uh, reassurance and also doesn't really tell us anything. Um, so this walk back sort of produced two different camps of people on the internet too. It's the ones that were saying, oh, see, 1031s are fine because they made this clarification statement. Uh, and then the other camp, which I think I fall into, which is just saying that they're not going to make a blanket statement saying they're not allowed, but they're still probably not going to allow them unless you make a really strong case. Um, I think, I think it goes back to what you were saying before. I mean, totally about individual facts and circumstances for those one or two people that strictly traded, you know, Bitcoin and maybe the Bitcoin um, forks, like Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold. Maybe then for them, Litecoin is okay because they're all kind of similar coins. They all fall under Litecoin. But the majority of people are trading, you know, Bitcoin for ETH and other coins, altcoins. And so Litecoin probably isn't going to work for them if they had used it back then. So I think that's where the individual facts and circumstances comes in. It goes back to what you were saying about if the coins are similar enough, then maybe you're okay. Maybe you were okay to use like kind, but not many people really did that from what right. I, the data I've seen. Right. And a lot of people who did, um, didn't report it correctly. So when you report a like kind exchange, it has to go on form 8824 mm -hmm. and you report almost all the same information that you would right. um, on your 8949. Uh, some people interpreted Section 1031 to saying, well, I don't need to tell the IRS anything until I cash out to fiat. Right. So not listing it on uh, the return at all is not going to help your case uh, in an audit if you're trying to take a 1031 position. I always say better safe than sorry with stuff, but uh, one of our one-star reviews on iTunes accused me of being too conservative. So now I try and watch what I say in terms of, uh, <laughs> in terms of that, in terms of that kind of stuff. But I do think it's better safe than sorry in terms of don't, don't get audited. Don't, if you don't want to pay fines and stuff like that, then avoid kind of like these controversial uh, tactics. But that's just my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I always try to, to present all the options uh, to clients I work with and say, here are the potential consequences of doing what you're doing. And if you're comfortable with those, you know, and we have enough of a basis in the fact pattern to take this position, I'm fine taking it. Because at the end of the day, um, you knew the risks and I'm not the one paying the tax. For sure. Uh, so if you're fine, uh, you know, taking a 1031 
knowing that it's more than likely not going to survive an audit and there's going to be a whole bunch of penalties in addition to the tax, um, you know, go for it. That's great. Uh, yeah, but it's my job to make sure that you understand the consequences of, of what doing that may turn out to be. Yep. And that's, that's generally our stance too. I mean, we allow like, we're probably one of the only um, cryptocurrency taxation softwares that allows for like kind calculations. I mean, there may be other ones out there, but I know I've had customers tell me like, Oh, wow. I can't believe you guys do like kind. I couldn't find one, you know, in other places. So we allow it too, but you know, use it at your own risk, I guess, or, if you're still doing 2017 taxes at this point, then you're certainly using it at your own risk. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I mean, and you'd be, uh, some people. Uh, I wouldn't are, be surprised, but yes, most people would be surprised. I suppose that there are still people doing 2017. Yeah. I mean, taxes. two points on that. Uh, a lot of people who got these 6170 X letters uh, are doing multi-year amendments back to 2012 or 2013 to True. really clean up and get compliant, report all their forks. Uh, you know, maybe they took like kind originally and they decided that maybe it wasn't the best idea uh, mm-hmm. and they want to uh, fix things now. So that I've been doing a lot of prior year returns um, and the, the really downside of those is you have to, you can't e-file an amended return. Hmm. Uh, and so, and under the, the 8949 rules, because there's no corresponding like 1099B, you have to report every transaction. So I'm mailing in returns that are six, seven, eight hundred pages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, it's kind of ridiculous the amount of paper I've been going That's through. The, I never really thought about that because I knew all of those individual things that you couldn't, you know, e-file and that forms would be very long in general. But I never really thought about oh man, people going back and amending. They really are mailing in those like eight hundred page returns. Yeah, and then somebody at the IRS has to process that. Yeah, <laughs> Which, yeah. Jeez. All right, Matt. So we have gone over quite a bit. Uh, really appreciate it. Like I said, you're definitely a pro on all of this. So I really appreciate your input. Really appreciate having to hear what you have to say. Can you kind of give us a kind of like a quick summary of what uh, we talked about and your opinion on these matters? Yeah, basically the biggest takeaway is even though we have guidance, uh, we don't really have that much more concrete information now than we did a year ago, um, especially as it relates to forks. Uh, we know what the IRS is going to be expecting and, and that's that they want you to report these as income. So really, if you want to take the conservative approach, uh, you would do that. And if you want to, and, and that's probably what the vast majority of people are, are going to do. They, they don't want trouble from the IRS. They don't want letters from the IRS. Uh, so they're just going to follow the rules. Uh, but maybe there's that renegade out there that wants to challenge these things and take it through a multi-year court process, uh, you know, to prove a point. And that's definitely an option too. Um, but we have a, a lot of information and a lot of questions about forks and recognizing them and trying to figure out uh, when we have control of those coins. So when the income would be recognized, um, we have uh, still a lot of uncertainty on whether uh, 1031s were allowed uh, prior to 2018. And we also have uh, some questions about how the, uh, the new Schedule 1 question is going to work and whether that's going to uh, generate unnecessary letters for taxpayers. And then, of course, we're still waiting on uh, guidance on some other stuff. Wash sales, uh, in, in particular, is a big topic that comes up a lot, um, and we don't know how the IRS is going to treat that. Also, uh, more specific guidance on airdrops, especially ones that you didn't want. Um, and also uh, coins that were s- stolen or scammed or sent to the wrong address. Those are all different situations uh, 
and could have different treatments. But right now there isn't really great guidance on what happens if, uh, you know, I, I accidentally send my Bitcoin to a Bitcoin cash address uh, and it's gone forever. Yeah, that's um, actually a big question that a lot of customers ask us um, what they can do with their lost and stolen coins. They always, people still tend to think that if they had some coins scammed from them or if they lost coins, that they can use that as a loss. But taking a cryptocurrency loss in that sense was, was removed a couple of years ago, right? Can't yeah, it's definitely not a capital loss. Capital loss, right. Um, it, it could be considered a casualty or theft loss, but those went away right, uh, right, right, right. in 2018. So it sort of leaves you in limbo and out of luck at this point as far as a reasonable interpretation of the rules would go. It doesn't seem fair, but that seems to be uh, the way that it is. But the, there's some nuance to that situation too, where depending if you still have the coins, you know, if, if I traded all my Bitcoin for, uh, you know, some sort of scam coin and now I have the scam coin, uh, if I can sell that for a penny, uh, you know, to someone, I can, I can generate a capital loss that way. But if I just sent all my coins away and you just took them because uh, you had a fake exchange or whatever, uh, I'm pretty much out of luck. Right. And I think that is actually the approach that I see people taking. Um, and of course, it's again, take that risk if you, if you want. Uh, but I do see people doing that a lot where they're like, okay, well, I sold it for a penny. And I guess if they like transfer the coin to somebody and just like said they sold it for a penny, that's their prerogative, I suppose. I mean, that's enough to say it's a sell. Yeah, there's some technicalities you can you can get yourself into trouble with there though. Just to you know, if I if I sold it to you and and we had prearranged this that you know, it may not be considered an arm length arm's length transaction. Uh, and there's also a rule uh, called the economic substance doctrine. Yeah, we've which, talked about that on the podcast. Yeah, which basically says if you're doing something only for the tax purposes, it doesn't count. Uh, that's a pretty quick, quick and dirty summary of it. Yeah. Uh, but that comes into play, especially around wash sales. You know, if I liquidate my holdings and buy them back three seconds later, it's hard to argue that I was exposing myself to an economic risk by doing it. And you have a really uphill battle there to prove that you're entitled to uh, the tax benefits of doing that. Yeah, really some really subjective stuff in the rulings here. A lot of stuff up for interpretation, which makes things extremely difficult and extremely confusing for a lot of people. So I guess that's kind of the TLDR here is that things are still just as confusing, if not more confusing, as they were <laughs> before the guidance was released. Absolutely. That's, I guess, one of the things that comes with the joys of, of cryptocurrency trading is just uh, in, a, in a brave new world here. So just kind of had to bear with us. Everybody has to bear with each other until we get some actual answers here. Yeah, we're pioneers. We are pioneers. I agree. <laughs> and Matt, I think that you are one of the wisest pioneers that I've encountered in this very confusing space. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you being here today. I'm always happy to uh, lend a hand and, and jump in on your subreddit and, and answer some questions. And, uh, you know, I love that you guys are a resource out there as well. For, for people to use. Yeah, we want to help people with our software and we want to help people with our podcasts and by retweeting your Twitter posts. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> we try and help people in a variety of ways. So how is the best way for um, somebody listening to get in touch with you? Yeah, so especially uh, in tax season, uh, if you want to jump on my website, uh, which is bitcointaxes.me. And uh, I just have to I guess give the caveat that I didn't, you know, wasn't trying to steal your guy's name when I registered that <laughs> domain. <laughs> but I just like, I, I like the pun in there, you it's know. It's kismet, as they say, that we would uh, have found each other, you know, yeah. Bitcoin taxes 
founds Bitcoin Tax is me, and it's a beautiful friendship. So no worries, man. Yeah, so you can jump on the website there. You can email me at matt at bitcointaxes.me. Uh, like I said, I'm on Reddit and Twitter. I'm trying to use those less, especially now that it's the busy season. Uh, so email is probably the best way. Okay, great. Also, the disclosure, as usual, that we usually say at the beginning here, this is all kind of just for informative purposes, not a tax advice, right? Absolutely. I am not your accountant uh, or your attorney. I'm definitely not anybody's attorney, uh, but I'm not your accountant uh, unless I am one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm probably not your accountant. Yes. And likewise, our podcast is also not intended and should not be taken as any kind of legal tax or financial advice. Please always speak with your own tax professional for correct and up-to-date information. Everybody, thank you for listening to the Bitcoin Taxes podcast. Uh, make sure you stay tuned for more cryptocurrency and blockchain related podcasts. And again, Matt, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Sal. No problem.